You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. The 107th Psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried, to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, Then they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then, They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people, and praise Him in the assembly of the elders." He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water and a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards 
and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This psalm is not only an invitation into gratitude, but it is an exhortation and command to gratitude. From the very beginning, did you catch that? Give thanks to the Lord. Not maybe or hopefully or you might make... No, give thanks to the Lord. And then multiple times, did you see that in verse 8? Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Verse 15, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Did you catch this? This is the chorus of this song. Verse 21, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Verse 31, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. As if you might forget. He says, look, this is how you will respond. Now verse 43, attend to these things. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It's not just an invitation to gratitude. It's a command to gratitude. There's an expectation here that if these things are true, if these stories about what God is doing and the character of God being revealed in His people is coming about, then gratitude is the natural response. So I want to lead and begin with a confession. I tend to see the world through the lens of what I think is missing. I tend to see every single situation and immediately notice what I don't have and what I wish I did. And I think you might be the same way. And I think that the original recipients of this psalm, the beginning of the fifth book, did you catch that? There are five sections. I mentioned this several months ago. There are five sections, and you see we're at that. They're right before verse 1 in the ESV. It says, beginning of book 5 or fifth scroll or book 5. It's the fifth section of the Psalms. And it's most of these Psalms are, as you saw from the language, the language of exile. The Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. The Egyptians had a new land, but then in their rebellion, they received the discipline of the Lord and the Babylonians came and dispersed them, deported all the smart, educated people, left the rest for dead scattered them to the winds. The, the word is the diaspora or the dispersion. They were scattered, exiled, and they had no home. And so the language of this psalm and many of the other psalms in the fifth book are the language that you catch here of homelessness, of disorientation. And it's an invitation that in the midst of wherever you might be, you might begin to experience gratitude for what the Lord has done. 
You see, we have reason to be grateful to God because He delivers the wanderer, the imprisoned, the fool, and the proud. And I'm afraid if you're like me that you can walk into a room and immediately measure up all the things that are missing. And if that's you, you're doing it right now. You can look at me and immediately see all the flaws. You can look at a church. You can look at a family. You can look at any situation. You can look at a product, a song, a movie. I mean, think about it. Like, that's a thing. That's a, 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 you can be a movie critic and get paid for this. But notice, you will find no joy in that. And if you're like me and you can walk into the room and immediately pick out the flaws, then this call and command to gratitude is a command to experience God's goodness and grace that overflows to joy. Because here's what I know. Gratitude and entitlement cannot coexist. You cannot experience gratefulness for something if you, are at, if you are simultaneously experiencing a sense of entitlement. You are owed something. And ingratitude and greed are partners. They always travel together. And this, and this psalm and many other places in the Scripture, the Lord re- reminds us constantly of what we've been given and how much we do not deserve. Even in affliction, even in suffering, even for these people who would have originally read this psalm, this poem, this song, this hymn, who were deported, dispersed, they were scattered, homeless and aimless. God didn't forsake them, didn't abandon them, didn't cast them out. And so, what we find here is that God rescues God rescues. In fact, if you read, there's, did you catch them? There were four different parables, if you will. There was like four different storylines to display what God does. God rescues. Did you catch that? The, the first one was, was of the wanderers. Verse 4, there were some who wander. They have no way. They're aimless. And then it says there's some in the darkness of imprisonment that comes from, their, verse 11, rebellion against God's commands, God's words and statutes for them. Thirdly, there were the fools, the people that were made foolish, not, not intellectually, but did you catch that? They were foolish because they knew what was right and chose to rebel against God in their sinful ways. Their iniquities, their affliction was brought on them because they rebelled against and rejected God's ways for their own. And then the last one, it gives us a picture of like highly competent people. People who who took to the open waters, who took to the sea with great courage, and then it says that even though the courage drove them out there, their courage, did you catch that? Failed them. It melted away in verse 26 because what they were doing evidently in their deep courage was trusting in themselves in such a way that it was classified as evil. And if that isn't enough, beginning in verse 33, the, the psalmist gives this rumination, this poetic reflection on how God loves to turn things around. He loves to change the fates of His people. He loves to take what was once this and turn it into this. He loves to show that He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. And wisdom comes in verse 43 to the people who think seriously about it. God rescues. He delights to rescue. 
He loves it. It's his thing. And these four different episodes are, are depicting the, the plight of Israel, the plight of these people who would have been in exile, but it goes further in that because it describes some things that even those people in exile wouldn't have been familiar with. And these scenes are at once meant to encourage them about the character of God. You see a picture of what people are like, what human beings are always like. They're wanderers. They're they're prone to rebel. They're prone to do their own thing. And yet, in spite of that, with repetition in this psalm, God delights to redeem them. He loves to restore them. He loves to rescue them. He loves to give them a new fate. And even though they were on their way to something, He loves to turn it around and send them on the way to somewhere else. So let's walk through these four parables. Because God loves to restore His people. And if you were to say like the, the first parable, if you will, if it was a, a title of a miniature story of some sort, maybe a, maybe a television show, the first, beginning in verse 4, the, 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 the title of this one would be like the wanderers, the aimless, the wandering, the, the ones without direction. And look what it says. It says they kind of do whatever they want. They can go wherever they please. They have tons of freedom. Don't tell me what to do. I go where I want. But even in their wandering, what, what they declare to be freedom, what you, what you see here isn't freedom at all. It's actually just a cover for their aimlessness. And the result? They're famished. They're malnourished. They're starving. I wonder if even in this first story you might be able to relate. Maybe in this room you find yourself, or even in the last weeks and days, Months and years, you found yourself wondering where it is that you're going. Why am I here? And here's what this parable tells us. On the outside, you probably do a really good job of convincing everyone else that you do whatever you want. Right? I'm flexible. I'm spontaneous. I can do whatever I please. But what the psalmist tells us that you know deep in your own dark soul is that's a cover. It's a cover for feelings of lostness. And I know you take great pride. You're beholden to no one. You do whatever you want, but down deep, you don't really know what you want. And the reason why you do whatever you want, and that happens to be a different thing every season, is because down deep, you are thirsty for purpose. You don't know what you really want. Have you been there? You know what that's like? To feel aimless? To wonder what, what, what happens? Why am I even here? Did, did, don't, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Did you catch what he says? Then what did they do? In their aimlessness, they cried to the Lord. And he delivered them from their distress. He delivered them. He delivered them. He delivered them from their wandering, from their starvation, from their aimlessness. They gave him, he gave them a way, a purpose. And in giving them a purpose, did you catch what happened in verse 9? Because if you resonate with that, if you find yourself aimless and, and kind of like a roamer or wanderer, and again, I know you, you really like thinking of yourself as a free spirit, but look what it tells us about you in verse 9. You actually have a longing soul. And you're wandering while you're on to the next thing, the next job, the next idea, the next relationship, the next church. God help you. is because deep down inside, your soul is starving. But what does he say that the Lord does for those who begin to admit this and say, well, I'm wandering. I cry out to the Lord. And he says he satisfies. 
the longings of their souls and their hungry souls, he fills, this is good, right? With good things. He fills with good things. The next little parable, beginning in verse 10, you might, might title as, uh, let's call them the prisoners. Those who are deeply restrained. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. Well, how did they get there? Uh, the first story of the wanderers, we don't really know how they got there. They just kind of do their own thing and they end up like kind of wasting away all of their resources such that they're starving even in their souls. Well, the, 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 those that are in prison, it tells us how they got there. It says that in verse 11, they rebelled against God's very words. They spurned the counsel of the Most High God. Now this is interesting because because in many ways, they're, they're very similar. And even though the, the first character, the first parable of, of wanderers is they kind of did whatever they want and it causes them to be starving, the, the second parable is of people that, that did whatever they want actually also. And they, did you catch that? They actually they saw the words of God. They knew, hey, here's how we ought to live. Here's what God's good plan and design is for us. And yet I'm going to do whatever I want. I mean, it's the story of the entire Bible. There's only a couple chapters in the entirety of the Bible where we don't see what people look like and their sin. But the very first story of the Bible is even when things are perfect, human beings' desire is to rebel against God. God, I don't need you. I want to be my own self-sufficient person. I don't want to just be a dependent creature loving and serving you, living in communion with you. I want to do what I want. And literally the first rule, right? The first rule the first people in the first story in the first book of the Bible was, hey, enjoy all the good things, but just don't do this one thing. And they had one job, and they couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And what was the result? They lived in the imprisonment of shame. They tried to cover their nakedness, but they were cast out from God's, prison, God's presence into a prison of guilt and sin and death. And they'd like to say, well, I can leave here whenever I want, but what's really true is they're stuck there. You know what that feels like? You know what that feels like to, to think you have no freedom? Like you're bound to fate and to a path that you can't stop and it's, it's towards doom. Do you know what, I know some of you in this room, you know what that feels like. And every day you get up and, and if you can make friends with your routine, if you can make friends with it, you can operate pretty normally, but most of you in, in this situation would be able to recognize your own self in this little parable. That every day for you is a prison. Every day you dream about doing anything else. Right? You have little fantasies about islands in the Caribbean all the time. You, like, you just want to get out of this routine. Now notice what it tells us about them. Ultimately, they're in that prison because they thought they knew better than God. And this might be, for some of you, something that you resonate with because maybe you tend to be more self-righteous, right? If, if the first parable is of the person who's very licentious or, you know, they just kind of, they, they err on license, they do whatever they want, like, I, I do what I want, don't tell me what to do. The second group is like, no, no, no. There's order, there's structure. Did you catch it? There are iron bars. There are bronze doors. Don't break the rules. But they live in that place 
They live in that place of order to distract from the fact that down deep, they've rebelled against God and His Word. And they've replaced God's order for their lives with their own self-righteous standard. Notice they can't even live up to their own standard. And for some of you in this room, you know what that feels like. Now this is especially important because this is kind of the story, I would say, the parable of, of like, I would say, Western Christianity and religiosity. So maybe if you were raised in the church and you're, you're thick with the culture of the church and the customs of the church, but yet have no real joy in the gospel. And, and, you're, and again, maybe you're here to check it off the list. And, and the fact that you're here is actually evidence that you're in a prison. There's no joy in you. And here's the thing, we can all tell. But you're going to do it anyway. Because maybe one day, if you just live right and do all the things that you're supposed to do, you'll get out of that prison. But notice, that actually is its own rebellion against God's Word. That in and of itself is a rejection. It's saying, no God, your Word is not good for me. Your your order, your design for the world is no good. I, I reject your standard and I impose my own statutes. Here are the principles by which I must live. Now this is what's interesting the thing that they had spurned, did you catch that? They spurned the counsel, the word of God in verse 11, is the thing that God used to restore them. And in prison, right? The the language here is the picture of the Israelites in the book of Exodus living out in prison and, and in slavery to the Egyptians. And they cried to the Lord And in their prison, what happened? He delivered them from all their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and out of the shadow of death, and then they burst the bonds apart. I love that part especially. He didn't just set them free. He destroyed the bonds so that they would imprison no one else either. He didn't just like set people free. What did it say in verse 16? He shattered the doors and he cut the bars in two so that not only would the prisoners be set free, but no one else would be sent to that prison again. How did he do this? How did he do it? He sent them his word. They rebelled against God's word, so he bowed their hearts with hard labor. They fell down. They cried out. So now let them thank the Lord for this. Let them thank the Lord for this. For by his word, he delivered them. He came along and he declared that those prisons would no longer stand. Look at the next parable. I like this one the most. I probably relate to the fourth one, but this is, most people probably pin this one on me. Some were fools. Foolish. Now notice, if if you have uh, uh, one of the translations or, or a couple of them might say that they were sick, now, that word in the, in the Old Testament is never used that way, but, but that's what their translators are trying to make sense of. Did you catch what happens next? They loathed food, and then in the end, their restoration in verse 20 is what? They were healed. And so they're trying to make sense of how a fool can be healed. And I would just say that this, this is the nature. Like if you read the, the, the progression here, their, their foolishness led them to some real powerful effects. And it was by His Word. Did you catch in verse 20 that they were healed? It was by His Word they were restored. They were fools to their sinful ways. Now, it's important to think about this seriously 
we often think of foolishness only in intellectual terms. We often think of foolishness as a, as a psychological category, like of IQ. But notice those are terms that none of the original readers a couple thousand, few thousand years ago would have thought to use when they read this text. They wouldn't have thought about intellect. But instead, foolishness, folly for them, is a moral category. It's very important. Because you can be highly intelligent, highly educated, and very, very foolish. But look what he does in verse 20. Sends out his word, and God restores his people by the same word that they rejected. In the same way that the, those in prison spurned the word of the Most High God, and in the same way that the fools rejected God in their iniquity and sinful ways, they rejected God's word, it was his word that put them right. And so what that means is foolishness is not just an intellectual category. This is especially important for us, right? Smarts won't get you into the presence of God as if your intelligence somehow impresses God, right? Like, whoa, that's a bright one. In fact, some of the most foolish things I've ever seen done in my own life, my own ministry as a pastor, have been done by some of the most conniving, clever, and smart people. The people who are the most clever and brilliant at justifying their actions and making strong arguments that what they're doing is perfectly okay tend to be the people who do the things that are the most rebellious against God. Because they, of all people, can justify in the complicated recesses of their own mind how what they did made perfect sense. And it was okay for me. You resonate with that? I can. What does he say we are? Fools. Now, as we walked through a couple years ago, the book of Ecclesiastes, this folly, foolishness throughout the Old Testament, it's a moral category, and so therefore, it's almost always sin, but, but there's, there's a, a careful distinction there, right? All sin is folly or foolishness, but not all folly or foolishness is sin. I mean, you can make foolish, silly decisions that are, that are stupid by all rights here that aren't rebellion against God. They're just, again, they're intellectually silly. But they always lead to sin, such that all sin is folly and foolishness. To look at the counsel of God, to look at His order, to see His creating hand and His, and His providential work and say, nah, I know better than you. To look at the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe who holds everything together by the counsel of His will and say, nah, I know better than you. That's folly. And it's sin. Did you catch what happened to them? They started to experience a, they rejected even what should have nourished them. I love that. Like, have you ever, I don't know, have you ever thought of when you met some person and you said they're just like too smart for their own good? Did you catch it? Like, they're so brilliant, they just, they don't like food anymore. I've outsmarted the system. I mean, I, I know there's no, I know there's no trends of eating food right now that are for really, enlightened people. I mean, I know you're, you're a food woke person, but like, did, did, did like catch that? Did, the thing that, like the place that they were in their foolishness led them to a place that they stopped loving the thing that actually sustained them. And they started to get closer and closer to death. 
I'll say this. Do any of you fools know what that feels like? I know I do. I know exactly what this feels like. To have outsmarted myself, to put myself in a situation where I think I know better only to find out that it led to my own destruction. Well, hey, fool, join me. Did you catch what happened? Then they, in their foolishness, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And what did he do? Did he shame them for their, for their stupidity? No! He delivered them from their distress. He sent his word and he healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. Now let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. And he adds on to it in verse 22. Now let them be the ones that offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And let the fool, I love this. You can, you can hear the language of, of the Apostle Paul saying that like, like there's, a, there's this, some tension between the wisdom of the world and, and the foolishness of the world. And, and we proclaim as fools the foolishness of Christ crucified and it actually shames the wisdom of the world. Did you catch that? They're the ones. The fools are the ones that are the ones to tell others of his deeds in songs of joy. And there's the last parable. Some went down to sea in ships. Now this is interesting because you start off here, and, and remember the Israelites were not seafaring people, right? They were not sailors. Now arguably, none of us are seafaring people. None of us can live underwater for very long. And so like every time we see the picture of water in the Old and New Testament, it's always a picture of chaos, Right? It's a picture of God's judgment over sin and the chaotic nature of a broken, fallen world apart from God. It's chaos. It always represents death, right? And if you're an Israelite, that's why one of the most uh, historic texts in the Bible is what? It's Jonah. It's like, don't go out there, right? Certainly don't go out there to rebel against God. A fish will eat you. And yet, what is Jonah? It's, it's, it's a preview of the gospel, isn't it? In their rebellion, they went out into the chaos, and through the chaos, God, by miraculous means, delivered them three days later to where they were supposed to be all along. Get it? Such that now, what is it? The sign of Jonah is that Jesus would be in the tomb and on the third day rise victorious over death and the chaos. Revelation tells us that now in this new heaven and new earth, there is what? No ocean, no sea. Christian, do you remember your baptism? Being plunged into the depths of the chaotic waters where you and I both know had you stayed, you would drown. But that isn't the story of baptism. That isn't the testimony of Christian baptism, isn't it? It's that I was drowning, I was in chaos and sin, and yet what? Ha <laughs> ha! Just like Jesus on the third day walked out of the grave, so also those of us in Christ will be commanded to be resurrected. So it seems like these people have got it figured out. They're cruising on the chaos. Did you catch that? They went on sea and ships. They're like merchants or soldiers or navy, right? They're, they're doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep. And yet, did you see where it turns in verse 25? He commanded and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. And so you start out thinking like, well, these, this is a good parable, right? This is, this is a parable of what you ought to be. You ought to be competent. You ought to be able to navigate the chaos. You ought to be able to navigate the, the craziness of life. And what does he say? That's actually evil in verse 26. Notice what happened. The thing that fueled them failed them. They went out into the sea, into the chaos, saying, I, I've got this. And yet in verse 26, did you see what happened? Their courage melted. It melted away. 
it melted away. Here's the powerful lesson. They, they went out, evidently, in some evil fashion, trusting in their own self, such that in verse 27, when the storm gets there, right, they're, they're just wobbling. And it says it's like they were drunk. They were like stumbling on the deck of the ocean or on the deck of the sea in the ocean because it's like they were drunk and it's because they were unstable to the point where they were at their wit's end. Can any of you resonate with this little parable? Trying as hard as you can to show yourself as an achiever. Trying to prove to everyone you know that you're competent that you've got this. And all the while, putting on a facade of courage, your arrogance is simply a mask to cover your deep fear and insecurity. Did you catch that? The way it asks this same question is this, have you ever been at your wit's end? Think about that. Like Your wit is what got you here, and yet I've run out. I can't seem to outwit the circumstances. You know what that feels like? Especially for some of you high achievers in the room. You know what it feels like to get to the place where you're like, I, I, I can't outwit the situation. I'm overwhelmed and you're paralyzed. You see, what we find out here is that we, in fact, live by permission, not by good management. It's only by, I mean, this is profound, isn't it? Verse 25. He, that is the Lord, commanded the chaos, the stormy wind, to overwhelm the self-sufficient. He commanded it. And by means of overwhelm, He shows them that they're not able to actually manage these things. It shows us that in the end, the Lord is the one who says what goes and what stays. But maybe if you're in this room, or would you resonate with this? I'm at my wit's end. Did you catch this? I'm, try, I'm, I'm tired of trying to convince people I'm good enough. Maybe in this room, I'm just, I'm just exhausted and at my wit's end of trying to seem like I have it all together. Did you catch what happened there? Same story. Verse 28. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from all their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. I love that. I don't use that word a lot. I've made a commitment in this last week. I'm going to use the word haven more. Like a refuge. They thought they had it all together, when in reality they found out, oh, he's got it all together. He's got a place prepared for me. So now thank the Lord for this. Let them be the ones, in verse 32, who extol Him. Let them be the ones who regularly praise Him. They're the ones who point out in the congregation of many people, right? The same people they were trying to impress are now the people they're trying to convince how impressive God is. The same people they were trying to look a certain way, they now become the ringleaders and saying, oh no, He's got this. He's got the, the same people that they've been declaring at the top of their lungs, I've got this figure, I've got this, don't look to me, I've got it. Now they're saying, no, he does. He's got it. And all the assembly of the wise ought to hear this. And then from verse 33 on, you get this picture of what God likes to do. God loves to do this. It's a picture of like deserts turning into rivers and then deserts turning into pool of waters or, or then rivers turning into deserts and things that are flourishing turn into desolation and things that are desolate turning into flourishing. 
If I were to summarize it this way, God delights to bring about great reversals of fortune in the affairs of his people. He genuinely delights in restoring his people. He loves showing them that what they thought was hopeless is not without hope. And he loves showing them that when they have put their hopes falsely in something other than him, that those hopes cannot deliver. Pastor, I heard say it this way, it's stuck in my head, and I you probably heard me say this. God is the great turner arounder. It's what he loves to do. He loves to take situations that really seem hopeless and then show them how hope filled things are because of him. And he loves to take people's false hopes, rip them out of their hands, and give them a better gift. Don't miss this. The lost is without a way. The prisoner is shackled. The fool is without wisdom. And the overconfident is overwhelmed. And yet the Lord delights. He delights to deliver them all. The end of each of these parables is the same. It's a refrain. It's a repetition. The Lord delivered them. They cried out to Him. Don't miss this. We all have distress. To be a Christian isn't to be without suffering. It's not to be without distress. We all have it. And in fact, sometimes the, the remedy we, we put together is just to compare distress, right? And it never works. It causes a mess. What matters, according to Psalm 107, is what we do with it, how we respond to it, and where we turn in it. We cry out to the Lord. We respond in gratitude for what He's done. We turn to Him and find Him to be our refuge. But look where it lands. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. And that's a mysterious little passage from verse 33 on, isn't it? The, wait, the Lord brings hardship? Ooh. Wait, the Lord will bring difficult situations? And, and that, that messes with our sensibilities, right? Like we're, we, in kind of our American Western Christianity is like God's like this big warm blanket that just is there to comfort you no matter what. But often the Lord's love for you is to remove the false hope you have. And it may end up turning your life upside down. And what does he say? Like that's, It'll take some wisdom to attend to that. Right? Think of Joseph's words at the end of the book of Genesis where he was betrayed by his brothers and abandoned and forgotten in prison. And then finally he's restored and he's like second in command to the greatest empire of the world. And finally when he gets a chance to face his brothers and he has a chance to exact revenge, what does he say? The famous profound words, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good for the salvation of many people. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Wait, things that seem evil, maybe even were evil, God was able to use for good? So let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Consider, catch what he's saying to us. He's saying, look, we will reflect on these things. We will meditate on these things. So to know the steadfast of the Lord superficially is to not know it at all. To only know the steadfast love of the Lord from a distance and superficially is to know none of it. The steadfast love of the Lord is like, a, is like the Grand Canyon. It will take your life 
to explore the nooks and crannies of it. And it can kill you. It's like the depths of the ocean. It would take a lifetime to explore it, and it could kill you. So attend to this thing. It's not something that you apprehend quickly. It's something you experience powerfully, and you reflect on it. Elsewhere, the psalmist says we meditate on it. The way of the Lord's steadfast love is something that we don't just simply immediately get, even though we're, our eyes are open to it because God loves to convert and transform from verse 33 on. But, but then it becomes a posture that we take, that we are always attending to these things. So therefore, our praise and gratitude are completely fake when we show up thinking we are all right. Did you catch who this joy is for? Who this wisdom is for? Did you catch it? It is not for the people who think they have everything under control. Did you catch it? It's for the lost. It's for those who are imprisoned and shackled. It's for those who are foolish. It's for those who think they have it figured out and they're overconfident. That's who this is for. And so this is what this means for us. That means that if you're in this room and you just really kind of want a dose of Jesus to to get you through the next week, you, you don't see Jesus rightly at all. Jesus is not a quick fix. Jesus is not an ingredient to your life's happiness. And I know many, we, we talk about Jesus as the, the, the effects of the gospel are central to the character of Jesus. Like, hey, I, I, if, if Jesus will just get me through, I'll, I, you know, I'll get things figured out. If I can get my life together, if I can get my finances together, if I can get my family together, if I can get my relationships together. And, and, and what do we find here? Jesus, the Lord's work of redemption that we celebrate as Christians in Jesus isn't that he came to like clean up sinners. He came to bring dead things to life. And we attend to that. We reflect on that. And the result is, did you catch that? Real praise, real singing, real gratitude is the result. So just ask yourself this morning, why did you come here and what did you expect? What do you tend to trust in? What do you tend to hope in? Because I've come to find out the declaration of this good news, this good news of God's finished work on our behalf in Jesus is the most offensive to the people who think they've got it all figured out. And the thing that, here's what I know about you, makes you the most uncomfortable are people singing and celebrating and declaring the praise of God. And if you find yourself, if you, I don't know, if you see someone, me or anyone else, like worshiping, like with their hands raised, If that makes you uncomfortable, then friend, you're either lost, in prison, overconfident, a fool, or all four. And I have good news for you. If you'll just cry out to God, He'll restore you. He'll give you the joy that down deep you're jealous of, you're envious of. He'll give you the joy that that bothers you and everyone else. He'll grant it to you. He's waiting to do it. He's delighting to do it. He gives us multiple stories. Maybe you're this, maybe you're this, maybe you're this. And what's their refrain every single time? They cried out and they were restored. Christians aren't the people who have it all figured out. We're the ones who just cry out to God when we we recognize it. That's our standing before the Lord. I can't have any hope apart from you. And the thing I've already been hoping in will turn to dust. Notice, let me read to you 
This story shows up later in Mark's Gospel. And a story we walked through Mark's Gospel several years ago. When evening had come, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, they, they took him with, excuse me, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I love that, right? Have you, have you ever been there, been in that situation? The people sleeping are the most annoying when you wish you could be sleeping. Right? One day before I die, I'm going to sleep on an airplane. Right? And it's like shaking. And there's always like a guy somewhere around us, and he's just, just snoring. And I'm like, oh, I hate that guy. Like, what? Like, how does he do that? Even recently, like if you're in a room and someone's snoring and keeping you awake, and they're just like taunting you, I'm sleeping. And in that feeling, what did the disciples say? They woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not even care that we're perishing? And this is the greatest, most understated passage speaking of Jesus. And he awoke. (laughs) And he awoke. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Listen to their response. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Did you catch that last parable? Did you catch the tempest, the waves that were overwhelming them? And what did the Lord do? He said, Shut up! Your mouth. Did you catch that? They were silenced. They were hushed in verse 29. And the New Testament comes along to tell us that the answer to this prayer for the chaos is Jesus. He is the direction for the wanderer. He's the freedom to the prisoner. He's the wisdom to the fool. And he's the haven to the storm-tossed sinner. He is the hope. And if you will but cry out to him, he will heal you and deliver you from all your distress. Let's pray. I want to invite you into prayer in a way that's different than other times, but this psalm tells us, if you'll join me in bowing your head and close your eyes, you're, you're, this psalmist tells us that each of us has something to say. Did you catch that from the very beginning? Let the redeemed of the Lord say that. And for those of us who are wandering, imprisoned, foolish and overconfident, we have something to say. We have a cry out to the Lord. So I want to invite you. The psalmist says we have something to say. Father, we thank you so much that you have restored us and you didn't do it begrudgingly or out of obligation, but you did it out of delight. You love to restore your children. Now, if you're in this room and you identify much with wandering, you identify much with being lost and aimless. Would you do me a favor? Would you do something amazing? Would you tell the Lord that? Even now in this moment, would you just cry out to the Lord? Just admit, Lord, I'm, 
I'm lost. I don't know what comes next. If you're in this room and you feel shackled, maybe it's by addiction, by routine, or by your own self-righteous standard, but either way, you feel no freedom in life. Would you do something? Would you cry out to the Lord? Would you cry out? Right where you are. Say, God, help me. If you're in this room and you've been a fool, you've thought you know better than God, and as a result, you're starving inside, would you cry out? Tell the Lord that right now in your own words. If you're in this room and and you're simply putting your confidence in things other than God's mercy for you in Christ, you're hoping in something other than Jesus. You're hoping in success. You're hoping in an image. Would you cry out to him? Confess that to him right where you are. Lord, I thank you so much that you delight to turn things around. You delight to demonstrate your steadfast love to those who are in deepest need. For those of us in the room that know and are beginning to be aware of how desperate we are without some intervention of your grace, would you begin to impart that to us? And now, Lord, as you have heard us in our distress, as you restore us by your mercy, let us, the redeemed, say so. In Jesus' name, amen.